All right, open to the Gospel of Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 1. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, you know, a lot of people say, you know, back in Bible days, people believed things because they didn't know any better. You know, they weren't scientific. They weren't technological. So in other words, they weren't smart like us. Well, Joseph was smart enough to know that if a woman did not have relations with a man, she wasn't going to get pregnant. Smart enough to know that. He knew that if she was pregnant, that there was a problem. So he was going to put her away. Really, we would say divorce her. um, Because he thought, well, she's messing around. Well, as we read the story, we find out she wasn't messing around. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and he's quoting Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The name Jesus literally means Yah saves, or Yahweh, or Jehovah is Savior. In other words, what the name means is salvation is not of us. Salvation is of God. Salvation is of Yahweh or Jehovah. It is the gift of Yahweh. It is accomplished by His grace and by His power. From first to last, God saves us. God saves us from first to last. And He does it through the work of His Son, Jesus. In fact, Jesus, according to Scripture, is God. Thus, His work and God's work are really one. So, this text tells us that Jesus saves us from our sins. What does this mean? It means, first of all, that Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. We have all sinned. I have sinned more than many of you. And we all have broken God's law. And the result of breaking God's law is that we are all guilty before God. If you, uh, we're going to come back to Matthew, but look at Romans, the book of Romans, if you will. By violating God's law, we are guilty before Him. In Romans chapter 3, Paul gives a, a long argument here in the first three chapters, which he really sums up in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now, he's referring to the the moral law of God, mainly encapsulated in the Old Covenant. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So, the sum of Paul's argument to this point is this. 
is that God gave us a law not simply to show us how to live, but rather to show us how we're not living. In other words, by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you drive down the highway and there's no speed sign, you can drive as fast as you want. You're not breaking a law because there is no law. If there's a sign that says 60 miles an hour and you do 80, now you're a lawbreaker. You can only break a law if a law exists. So God gave his law to show us our transgression. We were living in a way, man was living in a way, which was contrary to God's moral will, but man not having a law, a revelation, did not know this. At least, well, he, he knew in his conscience. But God made clear to man his violation by giving a published declaration of his moral will. And these are encapsulated in what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, I have broken every one of them repeatedly. As a matter of fact, I break them daily. We all do. If we truly understand the spirit of the law, we understand that the ultimate law of God is that we love God with our whole heart, all of our strength, all of our mind, all of the time. Right? That's the ultimate call, the ultimate will of God for us. And unfortunately, we break that law. When we break God's law, we are by nature guilty before God. Yet the scripture tells us that the the punishment that we deserved for our violation of God's law was placed upon another. And that other was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. When he appeared on earth, he... Uh, he was, when he came for his baptism, the prophet John looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And when he said that, he was speaking to a Jewish crowd, and they understood that by calling him the Lamb, they had in their background all of the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant, all of the, all of the offerings, the sin offerings, the atoning offerings. And they understood that, that John was pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the atoning offering. This is the lamb that will take away your sin. In, we're in Romans 3. Paul goes on and says this. Um, he says, but now, in verse 21, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Now that word there, propitiation, uh, alludes to the mercy seat in the Old Covenant. The the in, in the Holy of Holies, we have, you have the, the ark, and, and this is the place where once a year the priest would go, the high priest would go in, and he would sprinkle the blood on the altar. And this would atone, this would cover, the, the word literally is cover, the, the Hebrew is kopher, it would cover sin. Well, we know from the book of Hebrews that the animal offerings never really took away sin that they were a temporary expedient until the Lamb came 
and the Lamb would put away sin once and for all. But God forbear, and here Paul talks about God's forbearance. Um, He says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So God looked at the animal offerings and He forbear, if you will. They covered, but they never fully atoned and, and put away human sin. It required a human sacrifice to take care of human sin. This sacrifice was made by Jesus. He became the covering. He became the atoning sacrifice. He became the propitiation for our sins. The the punishment that Jesus received was the punishment that every one of us deserved. And when Jesus died on that cross, he was dying on that cross for me and for you. And when we understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying in our place, then we're beginning to understand the heart of the gospel. Is that what Jesus experienced on that cross, that that, uh, punishment on that cross, is what I deserved. But he became my substitute. And God accepted his offering in my place. He died For me, meaning I don't have to die. He endured the wrath of God upon himself, so I don't have to experience it. He was punished for me, so I do not have to be punished. That's good news. That's why when Jesus was born, these angels are all singing, Glory to God, hallelujah, rejoice, joy. This is a good, this is a good thing happening. Okay? Good things are happening when Jesus is born because Jesus saves his people from their sins. And he saves them from the penalty of sin. Uh, further on in Romans, we are told, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is your lamb, your atoning sacrifice, then there is no condemnation upon you. Why? Because your lamb took the condemnation on himself. And you are no longer guilty in the eyes of God. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that when Jesus, when we receive Christ, by receiving Him, we receive His righteousness. His righteousness is imputed or reckoned to us. It is a commercial term. Imagine you, you hey, there's money. Imagine, imagine that you, you woke up on Christmas morning and you're checking your bank account, your bank account because you know, you're probably broke because you bought, bought all these gifts, right? And you, and you, you check your bank account on your iPhone or your iPad or, there's a million dollars in my bank account. How did that get there? Somebody put that in my account. Somebody reckoned it, if you will. That's what the term means. We have an account with God, if you will. And our account has been hacked (laughs) by Jesus. And what Jesus did is he hacked our account and he went in, instead of taking anything out, he put something in. And what he put in was his righteousness. His righteousness. So Jesus, having perfectly obeyed the law of God, his perfect obedience is then put into my account. How can God judge me if I'm righteous? He would be unrighteous. 
he would be unrighteous to judge the righteous. You say, but, but don't you sin? But I'm righteous. Well, how can those things be? Because my standing with God, my standing with God is based upon the work of Jesus Christ for me. My standing with God is not based upon my behavior. It is based upon what Jesus has done for me as my Savior. That is grace. So Jesus gives me, and you, if you believe in him, he gives me his righteousness so that I am now in right standing with God and I am not punished by him, I am not guilty before him, I will not come into condemnation. That's good news. So Jesus saves from the penalty of sin. But he also saves from the power of sin. Jesus saves us from the power of sin in our lives by giving us a new heart. Not only does he put money in my account, he puts his spirit in my heart. And he changes my heart. And by giving me the Holy Spirit, he gives me the disposition and the power to obey his law. Since we're in Romans, you can go to chapter, oh, we're in chapter 8. In chapter 8, 1, it says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the judicial part of this, if you will. But notice what it says in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, notice Paul is careful not to criticize the law. The law was good, the law was holy, and it was just. The problem was, we couldn't keep it. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, our inability to keep it. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Notice verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit of God enables us to walk in victory over sin. God gives us a new heart, that's called the new birth. Then he, That new heart gives us a new dispositions, new desires. The old sins don't have their attraction. We now have, have new um, appetites, if you will. We desire things like um, the Word of God. We desire prayer. We desire worship. We desire the, the communion of the saints. And the, all of these things that we desire, these good things, we desire mercy, we desire justice, we desire love. These are the work of God's Spirit in us. As it says in Philippians, God is working in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And in Galatians 5, Paul tells us this. He says, he exhorts us and he says in verse 16, Walk in the Spirit. Why? Because then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we walk in the Spirit, then we can have victory over the flesh. Because God has given us the Spirit for that very purpose. There's a reason the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. Because he makes us holy. That's what he does. He gives us holy desires. And he changes our hearts. And he gives us victory over the flesh. And he catalogs the flesh and all the bad jazz. And then he gives us the, the good stuff of the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace 
and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You don't need a law if you have these things. Because if you are walking in the Spirit, you are fulfilling the essence of the law. You're doing what the law would require. So Jesus not only saves us from the penalty of sin, Jesus saves us from the power of the sin because Jesus comes to live in our heart. And Jesus is greater than sin. Amen? But in giving us power over sin, he also gives us power over weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I would like you to turn there. Paul tells us his experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about his, his what is called his thorn in the flesh. And exactly what it is, we don't know. But whatever it is, it was not good. It was painful. He didn't like it. He wanted it gone. He even asked God to take it away. God did not take it away. Um, 12.7, 2 Corinthians um, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, unless I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And what did Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Not, I will take away your weakness. Not, I will take away your thorn. Not, I will take away your affliction. But in your weakness, I will manifest my strength and my power. In your disability, I will demonstrate my ability. Therefore... Paul says, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, in other words, in my weaknesses, in my disabilities, I will brag about that. Why? Because the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I am strong, I am strong. Not when I am whole, I am strong. Not when I am happy, I am strong. Not when I am have money, I am strong. When I am weak, I am strong. When I am broken, I am strong. When I am afflicted, I am strong. Through the power of Christ that rests on me. This verse 10 is, is, is the antidote to the American gospel. Which is, God doesn't want you to have needs. God doesn't want you to have distresses. God doesn't want you to be persecuted. God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. God wants you successful. God wants you happy. That's not the gospel of Paul. Paul says, if if I need to be weak in order for the power of Jesus to be manifested in my life, then I want to be weak. If I need to be broken in order for the power of Jesus to be manifested in my life, then I want to be broken. That's what he's saying. Jesus saves us from our infirmities, not by removing them, but by overpowering them. By using them. By transforming them. That's how he, he saves us. We think salvation means he eliminates problems. If you're a Christian, God is leading you into problems. God is leading you 
into conflict. God is leading you into battle. God is leading you into places you don't want to go. Because by going there, your flesh will be broken. By going there, you will see, as you've never seen before, how weak you really are. By going there, you will see just how ugly your flesh is. But that's where God wants you to go. Because you see, what the world needs isn't Christians who are good. The world needs Christians who are broken. Christians who are full of the power of Jesus Christ. And until we are, until we break, we don't fully manifest that power because the flesh doesn't want to go there. And so God leads us down the path of brokenness. Might be health, might be finances, might be relationships, might be many things, but whatever it is, He will lead you through a path where you need Jesus. And you need Him desperately. And as you become weak, then you become strong. And you say, I don't understand it. And I say, I don't either. You don't have to understand it to experience it. I know it's true. And so Jesus saves us from our weakness by making us strong in our weakness. And this is the paradox. And this is where I think many many of us get, get hung up. Because we pray, oh Lord, I have this thing. Lord, I want it to go away and it doesn't go away. And we think that, that he's not answering our prayer. He is answering our prayer. He wants you to have that thing. Because that thing is what is going to allow him to show his power in your life if you will yield to him. That's, that's the key. If you will yield to him. Remember the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel? Genesis 32, if you haven't read it lately, go back and read it sometime soon. Jacob, his name means schemer. And if you read Genesis, he was a schemer. This guy was smart. He was shrewd. He'd be a great CEO, you know what I mean? Probably be very successful, actually. He knew how to work the angles. Great at PR. Um, But then he met God. And he met God in a very intimate way, very personal way. And, and he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And the angel, you know, by the way, if you don't know this, when you wrestle with God, guess who's going to lose? Yeah, you. But the beauty of grace is when you lose, you win. When you lose, you win. Because when you read the story of Jacob, Jacob the schemer was having all kinds of problems in his life. Because it's, he, and he schemes, you know, he, he schemes and then he messes something up and then he schemes to fix the thing he messed up and then he's got another scheme. And his, his life is a house of cards, you know what I mean? He meets God, he, he wrestles with the angel and, and the angel strikes him in the thigh, it says. Wounds him. He wounded him. God wounded him. But he wouldn't let him go. He held on and he clung to the angel. He wouldn't let him go. And when the sun come up, came up, the angel said, I have to depart. And he left. And he gave, but he gave, he gave Jacob a new name. And that's when Jacob became Israel. And Jacob's schemer became Israel, which means prince with God. 
or one who has power with God. So it says after that day that Jacob limped, but he had power with God. So what would you rather have? Physical strength or spiritual power? What would you rather have? Financial strength or spiritual power? By touching his thigh, by striking him, by wounding him, God was demonstrating his mercy and his grace toward him. And by making Jacob lose, he was actually allowing Jacob to win. Because it is in weakness that God shows his strength. And when you are weak, it does not mean you are not able to be used by God. As a, as a matter of fact, when you are weak, you are in the perfect condition to be used by God. You are then ready to be used if you will call upon the power of Jesus Christ. But if you go forth in your own power, you will be defeated. But if you call upon his power in your weakness, in your weakness you will be strong. And God can use you. So Jesus saves us not only from the penalty, but from the power of sin. The power of of the weakness that sin produces. He saves us also from our disabilities. There's so many, so many stories in the Bible about God calling men and them saying no. And they said, often said no because basically they're saying, I'm not qualified. I'm not able. Right? You think of the story of Moses. God comes to Moses and Moses shows objection after objection when God calls him to go to Pharaoh. Moses says, well, uh, uh, who am I? I'm a nobody. He says, God, I don't know your name. He says, no one's going to believe me. He says, I'm not a good speaker. Eventually, he says, just send somebody else. And it says that God was angry at Moses. And we see the same thing with the, the parable of the talents. We won't read it because of time, but Jesus talks about the, the master gave five talents to one and two talents to another and one talent to a third. He went on his way, on his journey. He comes back and he says, okay, uh, let's get together. Show me what you've produced with the talents. And, and the one that, that had five made five more. The one that had two made two more. And the one that had one talent, what did he do? He went and buried it. The one with one went and buried it. Why? Well, who am I? I only have one. It's not going to do any good. I'm a nobody. It's not that much. It's no big deal. He went and buried it. And if you read Matthew 25, it says that the, the master of that servant was very angry at him for doing that. Just as the Lord was angry at Moses. For saying no. Over and over in scripture we see men who, who, who decline or attempt to resist God's call. And the, and, and the reason is that they're looking at themselves. I'm not able. I can't speak. God comes to Gideon. Says, Gideon, I want you to become judge. And he says, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my, uh, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. How, how can we, how can I, I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. God comes to Jeremiah and calls him to be a prophet. And what's Jeremiah say? He says, behold, I can't speak. I'm not a public speaker. And I'm a youth, I'm too young. In other words, I'm disqualified. Gideon says, I'm disqualified. Moses says, I'm disqualified. And you know what? They were all right. They were all disqualified. They were all unable. No one is able 
to fulfill God's call. Do you understand that? We are on this quest of, uh, the, the American church is on this quest of self-improvement. Where we can get good enough to do what God wants us to do. We're never going to be good enough. We're never going to be qualified. We will never, ever, ever deserve God using us. It doesn't work that way. When Gideon said, I am the least, and when Jeremiah said, behold, I'm just a youth, God's response was this, I am with you. I am with you. And think about Moses when Moses finally accepted the call, he said, okay, God, I'm going to go. But please promise me, what? Promise me that your presence will go with me. God saves us from sin, weakness, disability. And in all of these cases, his solution is the same. I am with you. In other words, I am Emmanuel. Which is why in our original text, after it says his name will be Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. And oh, by the way, his name is Emmanuel. Because God doesn't save us from afar. God comes and he's with us and he saves us by being with us. God does not save us from the power and ravages of sin by simply giving us guidelines and principles to live by. In addition to principles, he gives us power. In addition to scripture, he gives us his spirit. His grace is greater than our sin. His grace is greater than our sin. His grace is greater than our sin. His power is greater than our weakness. His power is greater than our weakness. His ability is greater than our disability. This is the gospel. The gospel is God saves you. And he saves you from not just the punishment of sin, but from the power of sin in your life. He saves you from the frailties of life, your infirmities and your disabilities. And God gives you the power to fulfill his will in your life, whatever that might be. Are you hearing me? God gives you the power to fulfill His will in your life, whatever that might be. Whatever God is calling you to do, He will empower you to do it if you will call upon His power. There's no reason for defeat or for barrenness in the Christian life. For the Word of God says that we can do all things through Him who strengthens us. And that we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. You should be applauding God right now. This is the gospel. This The gospel is Jesus saves us. The gospel is not we live for Jesus. It's Jesus saves us. Jesus lives in us. Jesus empowers us. Jesus delivers us. Jesus uses us for his purposes and for his glory. That's the gospel. And so when you're feeling down, you're feeling weak, you're feeling sick, the power of God is greater than your inability. It's greater than your weakness. As a matter of fact, when you are most weak, you are most qualified. So stop making excuses. Amen. Stop making excuses. There is no paradise called the perfect time. 
the perfect place, the perfect situation. It doesn't exist. The time is now. The place is now. God's power is available now. You understand what I'm saying? We always put it off. Yeah, I'll get to that later. When I learn a little more, when I grow a little more, after I do this, after I get this straightened out, and after this thing's happened, and this, you know, the time is now to do the will of God. Because today is all that we have. And if God's calling you to do something, then you need to do it today. You need to do it now. Your, your inability is irrelevant. It is totally irrelevant. The power of Christ is greater than any obstacle. Any, any obstacle that you have, any, any lack that you have, He can fulfill if you will yield. Are you hearing me? God does not need our ability. He needs our availability. So we need to stop making excuses because when we do that, what we're saying, whether we realize it or not, we are denying the gospel. We're saying Jesus isn't powerful enough. Jesus can't save this situation. Jesus can't save me in this situation. Jesus can. Jesus can. And so often, Christians walk right up to the line of really experiencing what it's like to be used by God in the power of the Spirit, and they draw back. And it's because they're looking at themselves. They're not looking at God. They won't walk in faith. Faith means being weak and stepping out. When you ask God to empower you, He doesn't empower you while you're waiting for the power. He empowers you when you obey. It's when you obey. You know, we all want to be victors. We just don't want to do the battle. But it doesn't work that way. You don't get the ring if you don't get on the field. Right? We need to walk by faith. We need to begin to believe the Word of God, believe the promises of God, and believe that Jesus is who He says He is. The Word of God says He's the Savior, and He saves His people from their sins. And if you're one of his people, then you ought to be saved. I don't mean, oh yeah, God's not punishing me. I mean saved. Living like a saved one. Where the salvation of God is manifested in your mortal body, in your flesh, in your life, in your home, in your ministry, in your school, in your workplace. The world hates Christianity. Do you understand that? But they need to see Jesus. And not our Christianity. Not our goodness, but His goodness. That's what they need to see. I've been rambling, I apologize. Last point, He saves from the very presence of sin. And we don't have time to delve into this, but I just want to read a couple of scriptures. Go to the book of Revelation and we'll close on this. We sing about this at Christmas. When we sing that hymn that talks about, I think it's Joy to the World. It talks about, as far as the curse is found... Well, that curse is going to be removed. The curse will be removed. The heavens and the earth will be renewed. Sin and sorrow will be banished forever. Because Jesus saves from sin. Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now that's heaven, dwelling with God in perfect, perfect intimacy. That's heaven. Now here's, here's the icing on the cake. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. It is already done. Jesus has already accomplished. He is already saved, if you will. And he will eventually manifest the fullness of his salvation by completely banishing sin, making a new heaven and a new earth. And we will no longer experience the temptations and the trials and the sufferings inherent with sin. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. Amen? And we look forward to that and ought to um, live in light of that, that Jesus is a complete and total Savior. Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for those here that you've already saved. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk in the fullness of your salvation. I pray that, Lord, we would not see our lack, but we would see your fullness. We would not see our limitations, but we would see your ability. We would not see our weakness, but we would see your power. And I pray that by faith, we, Lord, would experience what Paul did, that in his weakness, the power of Christ rested upon him. And I thank you, Lord, that this is daily possible for your people. It is daily possible for us to walk in this victory because you save us. We don't save ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that you are a Savior who is mighty to save, that you save us to the uttermost from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and, Lord, eventually from the very presence of sin. Lord, we are so thankful grateful as we contemplate your birth again uh, this time of year, Lord. We're so, so thankful that you've come to dwell with us, Emmanuel. We pray all this in your name. Amen.